0: This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas, and I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. The CSTO, or the Collective Security Treaty Organization, is often touted as Russia's version of NATO, but comparing these two organizations side by side, is the CSTO more like Pepsi to NATO's Coke, or more like the Bing to NATO's Chrome? You see, for years, the CSTO has put itself forward as the peer rival and later continuation of the Warsaw Pact. But after years of nations dropping out, and the organization becoming increasingly seen as just an extension of Moscow's foreign policy, all that remain are just six nations. Russia, Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. The 3rd, 52nd, 64th, 90th, 98th, and 111th most powerful militaries. At least, those are the ratings back in January. As now, after coming up to nearly a year of fighting in Ukraine, the Russian military has lost quite a lot of the shine in one's ad. And if people were sceptical about the CSTO's security umbrella before, the last nine months are probably not going to help that. So when it comes to NATO, the central pillar of the NATO agreement is Article 5, the article focusing on the Mutual Defence Clause. It's the article that stipulates that declaring war on a member state like Estonia would not just mean fighting Estonia, but would mean fighting the majority of Europe and the United States. And when you take that into account, fighting the United States to win the ground of Estonia may not seem worth it. So what about the CSTO? Well, much like NATO, it does have the same mutual defense clause. So by the agreement, declaring war on Tajikistan would seem Russia swooping in to defend them. And you'd be at war with Russia as well. These mutual defence clauses are the central tenement of these agreements, and probably the main reason that a lot of these nations look to join the organisations. But this year, for the CSTO, that clause was tested out when earlier in the year, Azerbaijan directly shelled the UN recognised parts of Armenia. Not Nagorno Karabakh like usual, where there's debate over who owns what and there's a bit of grey area, this was Armenia proper, a clean cut, black and white case. By what's written in the agreement, The CSTO should have snapped into action and had troops on the ground to defend Armenia as quick as possible. But instead, nothing. No one came. All Russia could do was make a few phone calls, and in the end, telling the Armenians they had no choice but to concede ground, stepping aside whilst the Azeris closed the Lachin Corridor, the one road connecting Armenia to its enclave in Karabakh. Azerbaijan called the Russian bluff. Can you imagine if the shoe was on the other foot? That if Russia had shelled and rocketed Estonia, or even invaded or occupied part of it, and NATO just shrugged and called Estonia and told them to comply with the Russians. From that moment forward, there would be absolutely no faith in NATO ever again, and the entire security structure of Europe would come into doubt. And that is the exact horror that the nations of Belarus, Armenia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan are living through right now, can these nations still count on Moscow for their defence? And if no, and Moscow is no longer around to defend them, does that rip open a power vacuum for either China, the United States, the EU, or Turkey to fill? If the faith in these central tenements of the CSTO has been shattered, is there a point for these nations to stick around? And if that is the case, and the CSTO does fall by the wayside, will another nation seek to pick up where the Russians left off? And pilot the direct competitor to NATO? Well, to answer all of these questions, we turn to our first guest.
1: Part One The Marriage to Moscow.
2: The Collective Security Treaty Organization, the CSTO, it was one of these organizations or institutions. That Russia tried to establish in the post-Soviet space after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 as a mechanism to preserve uh, Russian influence. And the Russians have often tried to portray the CSTO as sort of the counterpart to NATO, although I don't think the uh, comparison stands up very well.
0: Steven Pfeiffer is an affiliate of the Center for International Security and Cooperation, as well as a non-resident senior fellow with the Brookings Institute. Stephen has 25 years' experience with the U.S. State Department, focusing mostly on the U.S. relations with the former Soviet states, as well as Europe. He formerly served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau for European and Eurasian Affairs, with responsibilities for Russia and Ukraine. He's also formerly the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, as well as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia on the National Security Council. In addition to Ukraine, he served with the U.S. embassies in Warsaw, Moscow, and London, as well as with the U.S. delegation to the negotiation of intermediate-range nuclear forces in Geneva. And we're thrilled to have him back on the program today.
2: The uh, Russians have tried to give the CSTO sort of the same of the attributes that NATO has. So, for example, Article 4 of the CSTO Treaty is very similar to Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, saying an aggression against one member will be considered aggression against all. And it has a secretary general and a loose structure, and there's some exercises but it's nowhere near as integrated as NATO. And I mean, just look at the size comparison in NATO, you have 30 members now, uh, likely to be 32 early in 2023 when the accession process for Sweden and Finland is completed, whereas the CSTO now numbers just six countries, uh, Russia, Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. And whereas, yes, the United States is the major military power within NATO, you've also got other serious countries, you know, Britain and France are serious military powers in their own right. And when you look at the CSTO, it's really just Russia. And it's been interesting to me is that there has been an effort many times in the last 15 years by the Russians to try to promote a dialogue between NATO and CSTO. And NATO's usually kind of brush that away. And, and that's been seen, I think, in Brussels as an effort by Russia to get NATO, in effect, to legitimize CSTO. Uh, by talking to it. And I think NATO looks at CSTO and says, that's not really a, a real counterpart organization.
0: It is somewhat odd that simultaneously, the CSTO has less cohesiveness in its command structures and less interoperability between other CSTO nations, whilst at the same time, all of these nations still mostly rely on Russian and Soviet equipment to equip their militaries. Even the second largest military in the alliance, Kazakhstan, has almost 90% of its equipment originating in Russia or the former Soviet Union. So why is there this lack of cohesiveness between the CSTO nations when they have so much militarily in common as compared to an organization like NATO?
2: There's nowhere near the integrated military structure that you have in NATO. Uh, you have some P exercises, but not the same level of intensity and pace, and the military forces could not integrate and perform a multinational operation in a major operation in the same way that NATO can. NATO, bear in mind, has been doing this for 70 years, and the CSTO doesn't really seem to have that same level and that same pace of exercises to have the kind of integration that NATO has. Obviously, the war
0: in Ukraine has impacted all of the CSTO nations. But which one do you think has experienced the greatest shift in dynamics?
2: Belarus has found itself, I think, in a very difficult position. And it goes back to two years ago in the Belarusian election, which most observers believe that Lukashenko uh, was not the one who, in fact, won the election. But he stayed in power with a significant degree of Russian support. And he's now become so dependent on Russia that he ended up having to let Russian military forces attack Ukraine out of Belarusian territory. Now, very clear, Lukashenko does not want to have Belarusian forces pulled into this fight. And I think there may be some basic questions. Would the Belarusian military really be prepared to do that? And I don't think his, his generals want to do that. So that's been one impact. I think another thing, though, that's been interesting to watch is Kazakhstan. And remember that in January of this year, in fact, Kazakhstan had a CSTO peacekeeping force and it was a Russian force come in when there were demonstrations in, in Kazakhstan. But you've seen, despite that, Kazakhstan's steer, I think, an increasingly independent course away from CSTO or certainly away from Russian desired positions. So on February 21, Russia recognized the so called People's Republics of Donetsk and Luhansk as independent states. Sitting on stage with Vladimir Putin, President Tokayev of Kazakhstan in June pointedly refused to endorse that. Kazakhstan has not voted against Russia at the UN, but it has not voted with Russia. It's tend to abstain on votes on the Russia Ukraine war. Kazakhstan they canceled their victory in Europe Day parade which was sort of seen as a snub towards the Russians and Kazakhstan also has decided to boost its defense spending by 50%. And you look at that and say what possible threat would Kazakhstan see? And my guess is there's concern in Kazakhstan about what Russia is doing to Ukraine and you even have some Russian pundits say suggesting that maybe Kazakhstan might be next. It was also interesting that Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan was at for a period of time was a member of the CSTO, but they suspended their participation. But they're talking about a cooperation on a bilateral defense treaty, which does suggest that the confidence in Kazakhstan and CSTO may not be all that high. And again, you have to ask if there's a bilateral Kazakhstan Uzbekistan defense agreement, who is that directed against?
0: and we will dive into Central Asia a lot more throughout the program. But for now, I want to drag this conversation back toward the West, as I want to ask you about the current dynamics inside Belarus. Prior to the previous year's protest, Belarusians had quite good relations with its EU neighbours on a citizen-to-citizen basis. Belarusians would quite often jump over the border to Lithuania to do some shopping, or even drive into Poland to do some partying over the weekend. But Lukashenko circumventing an election really did form a wedge between the EU and Belarus. And the war in Ukraine has driven that wedge much deeper between the two. So, how has this war impacted the lives of the average Belarusian? And do they blame Putin, or do they blame Zelensky, or Biden, or even Lukashenko himself? When it comes to the woes of the current situation, who do the Belarusians blame?
2: Well, it's probably a combination of both. I mean, they have seen now you know, countries putting fences up along the border with Belarus. I mean, that there is a level of border security between Belarus and Poland between Belarus and the Baltic States that you've not seen previously. And my guess is it's a mixture of feelings. But in Belarus, Lukashenko has built up a fairly strong security structure that you haven't really seen that unease ease emerge in a way against him. Although it was interesting that there were reports and I think fairly credible reports that there were groups within Belarus that were sabotaging. Belarusian railway lines in a way that was designed to disrupt Russian uh, military logistics efforts.
0: Belarus is probably Russia's closest ally in the region, to the point where flights between Moscow and Minsk are often regarded as domestic travel by the Russians. Yet apart from allowing Putin to launch attacks from Belarus into Ukraine, the Belarusian army has completely stayed out of this conflict. Do you think that Lukashenko is trying to stand up and send some sort of message to Moscow by not getting involved? Or is it more to do with the poor state of the Belarusian army and Lukashenko's hesitancy to destroy the army that largely keeps him in power?
2: I would put it down more to other reasons and not that Lukashenko is trying to send Moscow a message. Lukashenko is in a situation where he has become so dependent on Moscow that he's not really in a position to send them very strong messages. But at the same time, he is still trying to keep Belarusian forces out of the war. I I think he understands that that would not be popular at all, either with the Belarusian military or with the Belarusian public.
0: The other really stark shift to occur within the CSTO countries is in the South Caucasus, in the relationship between Russia and Armenia. Armenia has for a long time now been incredibly close with Moscow. So when in 2020, Azerbaijan launched an offensive to retake the Armenian held Nagorno-Karabakh, Russia stepped in as the largest military in the Caucasus, and stood between the Armenians and the Azeris before the Azeris could retake all of Karabakh for themselves. And for two years, that's where the region sat, with the Armenians still holding on to the majority of nagorno Karabakh and the Russians standing between the Azeris and the Armenians, preventing the Azeris from moving any further. Although as the war in Ukraine kicked off and the war dragged on, Russia needed more and more troops and began pulling more and more personnel off of their peacekeeping duties in Karabakh and toward the front lines in Ukraine. And after a while, with no peacekeepers between the Armenians and the Azeris, the Azeris launched a new offensive into the region, even shelling the UN-recognized parts of Armenia rather than just Nagorno-Karabakh like usual, a move that was seen as a major escalation within the Caucasus. This means the Armenians came under a direct attack from a foreign nation, and yet the CSTO wasn't called in, and this time Russia never came to the rescue. From my understanding, preventing this kind of a situation is the main point of the CSTO, that an attack on Armenia should have been regarded as an attack on all six of the nations. So why didn't it go down that road? Why didn't Armenia invoke Article 4? And if they had, who do you think would have actually responded to that call?
2: My guess is had the Armenians tried to evoke Article 4 of the CSTO Treaty, it's hard to see anybody that would have been eager to participate. Uh, Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan don't really have the forces. Kazakhstan would have seen this as a conflict that really doesn't touch on their interests. So I just think it would have been a very low response. And again, in the military fighting that's taken place between Azerbaijan and Armenia over the last couple of years, Russia has tried to portray or play a mediating role. But you haven't seen any great enthusiasm in Moscow for saying, "Okay, this is now a chance for the CSTO to respond. This has been, I think, a sore point with Armenia, and we saw that uh, actually last month, where Armenia hosted a collective security treaty organization summit. But nevertheless, the Armenian Prime Minister Pashinyan refused to sign the final summit declaration because he said that it failed to reach a CSO decision on how the CSTO should respond to what he called Azerbaijan's aggression against Armenia.
0: So do you think they'll eventually look to leave the organization, or are they looking around and seeing that between Turkey on one side and Azerbaijan on the other, there aren't that many friends left in the region?
2: Yeah, my guess is they're unhappy with the CSTO, but just geographically, particularly now with Azerbaijan, having over the last two decades used its wealth from oil and gas to build up its military, it's not really a a comfortable time for Armenia to leave CSTO despite the frustrations I believe they have with the organization.
0: The other added complication with CSTO is that there are active tensions between member states. Some people will point out that NATO has similar tensions between Greece and Turkey, but when it comes to the CSTO, it was only a couple of months ago that Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan were actively fighting each other over the border, with the recent skirmish leading to hundreds being killed. So how does the CSTO react when two of its member states begin shooting at each other?
2: Russian pride tries to politically mediate, but particularly in the last 10 months, they are stretched pretty thin. I mean, the Russian military probably has two thirds of its active duty ground forces now either in or recovering from their time in Ukraine. So it's not a time where the Russian has a lot of military capacity to try to deploy peacekeeping forces elsewhere.
0: Well, if Russia is in such of troops, why don't they call on the CSTO to declare war on Ukraine? Obviously, at this point in time, they haven't made that call, and it's fairly safe to say that if they haven't by now, that we don't think they will. But what is the reason for that? Is it that by keeping nations like Kazakhstan out of the conflict, these nations will avoid the Western sanctions, leaving a backdoor open for Russia to smuggle in things like airplane parts into the country? Or is it that the war would be unpopular and likely to ratchet up discontent with the population? And after the uprisings in Kazakhstan, and we saw in January, Putin isn't looking to receive a thousand Kazakh troops to only a month later have to send 3,000 Russian troops in to calm the situation down. But why do you think Russia hasn't called in the CSTO, and if they did, who would come?
2: Well, bear in mind that uh, on September 30th, supposedly uh, Putin annexed Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and the Kherson oblast of Ukraine. It was actually quite remarkable in that the Russian military did not control all of those territories. And today uh, they control significantly less territory than they controlled on September 30th. But my guess is the Russians would not try to bring CSTO in uh, because I think they would find that no CSTO member would agree to join in. And just as we've seen that many CSTO members have abstained at the U.N., they've not voted with Russia. I think Belarus has and maybe Armenia are on a couple of the votes. But the others have tried to stay out of this uh, because for the other members of the CSTO, in particular, I would say Kazakhstan, which borders on Russian territory, they're not comfortable with what the Russians are doing to Ukraine. And there is this concern if Russia does this to Ukraine and gets away with it, where might Russian ambitions in the future lead? And as I said, you've already there are already Russian television pundits saying that Kazakhstan or part of Kazakhstan should be next. So um, uh, the Russians have uh, very little chance of getting the CSTO involved in this war.
0: To throw a bit of a hypothetical out there, let's say the Ukrainian garrison in Kharkiv gets a bit bullish and decides to invade and occupy the Russian city of Belgorod just 30 kilometers away. Would Russia call in the CSTO then?
2: I just don't see that horizon. I think the Ukrainians have been very clear that they are not about trying to invade or capture Russian territory their goal is to push the Russian military out of Ukrainian territory. So I I just don't see that happening. My guess is, were Ukrainian forces to occupy a little bit of Russian territory for some kind of a tactical advantage with regards to liberating uh, Ukrainian territory, and it would not be intended to be permanent, it would be just temporarily, and the Russians to make some kind of appeal, I really don't think they could expect much of a response.
0: Well, if the organization isn't going to defend member states against outsiders, or even assist members that go to war with outsiders, the question has to be asked, what is the CSTO for? Based on the CSTO's deployment to quell the uprisings in Kazakhstan in January, do you view the CSTO as more of a regime securing organisation? That a coalition of nations coming in to secure Rahman's position in Tajikistan, or Tokayev's position in Kazakhstan, would come with a lot more legitimacy to the people than just Russian infantry walking in to do the same job, even though that ostensibly, it will be mostly Russian troops carrying out the operation.
2: That's a really good question, because I think Russia had capacity in January that it may not have now. And if the Russians are not prepared to play a leading role in the major role in that kind of peacekeeping operation, or that it's not really a peacekeeping operation, but that kind of operation to support the existing regime, uh, I don't see the other uh, members of CSTO being prepared to play. And as you said, I mean, there have been recent clashes between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. It's hard to see the governments in either one of those countries wanting to come to the aid of the other.
0: If that is the case, though, then why doesn't Russia invite the breakaway states of Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and Transnistria to join the CSTO?
2: I mean, Transnistria has not yet been recognized as an independent state, in in contrast to Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which back in 2014, Russia did recognize as independent states. Now, I think Russia and only about four or five other countries, or only four or five other countries, agree with Russia that those are independent states. But again, if you're trying to portray the CSTO as a serious organization, which I believe Moscow would like to do, bringing in little breakaway state likes like that does not enhance the credibility of CSTO. And you may also, again, have concerns by other members of CSTO. Is Kyrgyzstan, is, is Kazakhstan, are they prepared to send troops to defend South Ossetia against a possible Georgian threat I I don't think so
0: with all this in mind what do countries actually get for joining the CSTO
2: they get two things one is that is an insurance policy that we saw in Kazakhstan that there might be a chance of getting help if the regime gets in trouble Uh, again as I said I think that was a lot more likely before February 24 Uh, Russian capacity to do those kinds of support operations has been diminished by the commitments it now has because of its decision to uh, launch a new invasion against Ukraine in, in February. And the second thing is it's in a way to appease Moscow. It allows that, you know, the Russians want this. I'm sure the Russians provide on, on some countries pushed quite hard and it's a way to keep the Russians happy. But my guess is most of the other members of the CSTO don't see this as a serious organization in the way that, say, Poland or Lithuania or Italy or Norway see NATO as a serious organization.
0: So then why wouldn't Moscow expand and invite members like Iran or Syria to join the CSTO?
2: That's hard to say. Again, I, I mean, first that would take it geographically beyond the post-Soviet space. And really the CSTO will begin in the post-Soviet space. But also trying to bring in countries like Syria and Iran, that would pose the same questions. If you're in Moscow, do you really want to ask the Kazakhstanis, the Kyrgyz and Tajikistan to make security commitments to Syria and Iran? My guess is you would have a pretty good expectation that those countries would say thanks, but no thanks.
0: Obviously, the CSTO is a very heavily Russian-led organization, But China is becoming increasingly influential throughout this region of the world. So could you see China in the future putting forward a similar type of defense-like organization, but this time instead led by Beijing? And if China were to do so, who do you think would actually join that? Could this even be pitched as just an expansion to existing frameworks like the Shanghai Cooperation Organization?
2: Well, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization is interesting. I mean, I originally saw the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as really an organization designed between Russia and China to keep the United States out of Central Asia. And originally, I mean, I go back to when I was at the White House back in the 1990s. U.S. engagement with Central Asia was designed in part to give the countries of Central Asia an alternative to Russia. So, for example, we talked about multiple pipelines to give countries like Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan alternate routes to move their energy to world markets so that Russia would not have a chokehold. And my assessment is that that's much less necessary today because China is offering the countries of Central Asia alternatives. So you now have energy pipelines flowing from Turkmenistan, from Kazakhstan, I believe also from Uzbekistan that are bringing energy from those regions to China. And that gives the countries of Central Asia a certain amount of bargaining power. I'm not sure that China needs to expand or have some kind of a security organization in Central Asia. And that would be seen as a a, a really direct challenge to Moscow in a way that seems to be inconsistent with what Russia and China have tried to build in their relationship. But I do believe that you're going to see a situation where there may be increasing tensions between Moscow and Beijing, because on the one hand, the Russians look at Central Asia as sort of their backyard that they're responsible for the political and security arrangements there, but over the last 15 years through things like the Belt and Road Initiative, China has made significant economic investments in Central Asia, and it's hard to believe that at some point China will not try to convert those economic investments into political influence. And that at point you could begin to see some tensions arise between Moscow, and Beijing uh, over their respective engagements in Central Asia. What
0: do you think the CSTO's response would be if a minor power like Uzbekistan declared war on Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan? The Russians have been spending a lot of time in recent years working on rebuilding its relations with Tashkent, so it would be hesitant to declare war on them, but also wouldn't want to openly demonstrate the organization's frailty. So what do you think the CSTO response would be if war were declared on Kyrgyzstan
2: by Uzbekistan? That's an interesting question because Uzbekistan is on the outs; it left the organization. But again, in the same way that we've seen that the CSTO did not really respond in a, in the way that Armenia would have hoped after the uh, tensions spilled over into conflict uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia, I'm not sure that Kyrgyzstan could expect uh, that uh, the CSTO would be there to uh, provide help against uh, against Uzbekistan. This is, again, where I just look at the CSTO and it's a much looser organization. I don't think that members of CSTO can have confidence in their agreements Article 4 in the way that I believe most NATO members can and should have confidence in Article 5 for their defense.
0: As much as Kazakhstan may be playing particularly into the Western press with this divulgence from Moscow, the policies that it's put into practice would indicate that, yes, there's been some change in direction. But for the most part, The status quo remains in place. But does Kazakhstan really have any other choice in this? For the Kazakhs to sell their goods abroad, it either means heading south through Central Asia into Afghanistan or Iran, which are both under sanctions, across the Caspian, which means loading and unloading container ships at Caspian ports, or heading into Russia or China. So, no matter what Kazakhstan would like to do, will it be their geography that will largely determine their foreign policy
2: going forward? Kazakhstan is going to find it, Uh, Russia and China will be the dominant trade partners. Uh, simply because of location and the ability for trade routes and such like that. But but I think still Kazakhstan will seek to diversify. But again, looking over the last 30 years and looking to where Kazakhstan back was in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, I believe Kazakhstan is in a much better position now because back 30 years ago, Kazakhstan was almost solely dependent on Russia. China now has given Kazakhstan an alternate trading partner. And that's to the good. I mean, it reduces uh, Russia's monopoly position that Russia used to have over the movement of energy from Kazakhstan to global markets. And so it allows Kazakhstan a greater freedom of maneuver.
0: And my final question is, what happens after the war in Ukraine ends? Let's say we end up with a frozen stalemate like we see in Transnistria, or Russia annexing some territory but ending the war, like in Finland. Do the dynamics within the CSTO snap back to where they were in January, all the dynamics within the CSTO have been irrevocably changed by this.
2: I have a hard time saying now how specific, how this war with between Russia and Ukraine end. I, I will make one prediction is that however the war ends, there's going to be a sovereign and independent Ukrainian state on the map of Europe. And it's going to be much larger than the rump state that I believe the Kremlin envisaged leaving behind when it launched the invasion back in February. Now, Also, though, however this war ends, wherever, you know, if there's a ceasefire or if there's an agreement, whether Ukraine gets back all of its territory or something less, however it ends, Russia is going to emerge from this war diminished in multiple ways, diminished militarily with huge personnel and equipment losses, diminished, diminished economically, the impact of Western sanctions, particularly the cutoff of high tech inputs into the Russian economy but potentially, and again, there's a big if here, but if the West, and particularly if Europe can successfully wean themselves off of Russian oil and gas, that will have a huge impact on Russia's uh, export structure. And you Russia is going to be emerging from this conflict that diminished geopolitically. The Baltic Sea at some point early in 2023 becomes virtually a NATO lake when Finland and Sweden join. And, and so I just don't see the Russians coming out of this in a position that's going to allow them to assert themselves in a more powerful way within CSTO.
0: So Belarus now stands on the sidelines of the war, knowing that even the mild restrictions being placed on the country by the EU are really hurting the population, but while also knowing that Russia is likely the only thing standing between Lukashenko and a popular uprising in the country. so. He'll stick with the devilly nose. Moving south into the Caucasus, where Armenia has watched its pocket of territory inside Nagorno Karabakh get further and further squeezed by a now far more wealthy and far more aggressive Azerbaijan. With the memory burnt into their head that when push came to shove and they called for help from other nations, no one came. Not even the Russians. So, what about the other three CSTO nations? What about Central Asia? Well, with Kazakhstan's new leader, President Tokayev? He's hoping to distance himself from the man who put him in the position in the first place, the country's nearly 30-year ruler, Nur-Sultan Nazarbayev. But as much as he would love to distance himself from Nazarbayev and Putin, he also knows that Russian intervention during the January protests is likely the only reason he held on to power. And what about the other two Central Asian states in the CSTO, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan? Well, both are a part of the CSTO, but both of them are also constantly edging toward war between the two of them even going as far as renaming ethnic towns away from local cultural heroes to heroes of their own culture, just to antagonise one another. For foreign policy planners in Moscow, things don't look great. So what can Russia do here? Can Moscow bounce back from the war and reassert its positions inside the region? Will the Central Asian states turn toward working amongst themselves rather than orientating toward Moscow? Or is there another player that will likely play a larger role within the region? What wants that? We turn to our second guest.
1: Part two, the defiance of alliance. When it comes to Russia's presence in Central Asia, we shouldn't be talking about it in radical terms. Of course, the trend that we have been observing for the last decades i would say is that russia's importance and russia's influence in central asia is in decline in the first reason for that is that russia wasn't paying enough attention to really analyzing the issues and the changes in the region and was thinking about the region in a very colonial way that uh, Central Asia is not gonna go anywhere away from Moscow and that Central Asia needs Moscow and that Central Asia has little resources to find alternative partners for itself. But since the war has started and it's not going as presumably was planned in the Kremlin, the position of Russia has changed and the image of Russia is much different right now.
0: Timur Omarov is a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, with his research focusing on the Central Asian countries' domestic and foreign policies, as well as China's relationships with Russia and its Central Asian neighbours. Timur is one of the most highly regarded analysts anywhere in the world when it comes to Central Asia, and is regularly looked upon for his nuanced analysis of this often complicated region, and we're thrilled to have him on the program today
1: because of the differences that every single country in the region has in regards to Moscow, um, they use different instruments to gain the most of the situation where Russia founds itself right now. Some countries are using the moment to drift away from Russia, like Kazakhstan is a very good example of that. But some use Russia's weak positions to ask for more bonuses and ask for more presence of Russia, Um, and more importantly, ask Russia to make several concessions that it wasn't ready to do before the war.
0: One of the fundamental issues the CSTO has to deal with at the moment is the fact that two of its member states, Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan, are almost on an annual basis these days entering into short, sharp military conflicts with each other, usually only lasting one to two days leaving somewhere between 50 and 100 people dead. So how does the CSTO intend to solve this pretty fundamental issue?
1: That's a very good question. I think that you're right. One of the reasons why CSTO isn't interfering into the conflict between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan is that both countries are the part of the CSTO. And if we imagine a situation where a CSTO country has a conflict with non-CSTO country, whether Russia would be ready to weaponize CSTO or whether CSTO would be able to provide the security guarantees that it promises to provide. I very much doubt that if something would have happened between any CSTO member with, for example, Uzbekistan, which is not a part of CSTO in Central Asia, I very much doubt that Russia would use CSTO to act in a certain way. The fact is that CSTO hasn't been able to interfere into those conflicts even before the war, even before The fact that this collective treaty security organization isn't able to react on those conflicts tells a lot about what was the reason behind creating CSTO in the first place. And in my view, the main reason for that was not creating an umbrella of security for every single country that is joining CSTO, and it was not counter-terrorism. But the main reason for CSTO to happen basically was to make sure that all of the friendly authoritarian regimes will be stable and that Russia would have a legitimate instrument, a legal instrument, legal basis for interfering into those countries' domestic issues in case they have problems to stabilize their regime themselves. And the great example of that happening in real life was Kazakhstan in January
0: 2022. To quickly bring everybody up to speed here on why these January protests are so important to these conversations and why Kazakhstan's president is in the position he's in, I think it's important to just take two minutes and explain what happened in these protests. Obviously oversimplifying here, but Kazakhstan was ruled from the last few years of the Soviet Union right up until 2019 by one man, Nur-Sultan Nazarbayev, during which time him and his family solidified power in the country and became exceedingly wealthy, holding majority ownerships in many of the state companies as well as the state banks. Eventually, though, protests built up against his rule, and in 2019 things began to boil over in the country. And so, seeing the writing on the wall, Nazarbayev resigned from the presidency and appointed kassym Jomurt takayev the current president to be his successor. And whilst Nazarbayev did resign from the presidency, on the way out the door he gave himself the role of al-Basi, which roughly translated would mean something like Father of the Nation. And this title gave him a number of benefits, including protection from all prosecution past, present or future, allowing his family members to maintain their positions of power within the government and large state organizations, and Nazarbayev still sat at the head of the country's main economic and security committees even persuaded the legislature in Kazakhstan to rename the Kazakh capital from Astana to Nur-Sultan to honour him, the equivalent of Trump leaving the White House and renaming Washington DC to Donald. And because all of this was still happening, the Kyiv gained a reputation as Nazarbayev's puppet. And now fast forward to the 2nd of January 2022, where after power failures throughout the country, a very cold winter, costs of living rising, and corruption scandals breaking quite regularly, the Kazakh government decided to end its price caps on LPG and fuel, meaning the price of gas doubled overnight, exploding the cost of living crisis throughout the country. In response, most of the major cities across the country broke out into nationwide protests, with people storming government buildings and tearing down statues. At which point, most ministers in the government were either resigning by themselves, often to flee the country, or being fired by the Kiev to try and quell the riots. But nothing worked. Then on January 6th, four days later, CSTO forces from five nations were deployed into the major cities of Kazakhstan to regain the control of the streets and end the riots. The riots were quelled, and in the end, Takayev was one of the only members of government still standing, with him now being tasked to build a new Kazakh administration for the ground up. But it leaves him in a tough spot. On one hand, he needs to appease the reformers and the people looking for change in the country, and he is trying to do so by removing things like Nazarbayev's titles, not being as friendly with Russia as Nazarbayev was, seizing some of the stolen money that Nazarbayev's family took, and trying to reform some parts of the electoral system. But on the other hand, he also can't pull too far away from Russia or the old guard, as he may need them in the future in the event of another wave of riots kicking off across the country. After all, it was the CSTO that saved him last time. Again, just thought it was important for context, as a lot of the discussions around Kazakhstan will likely have been impacted by these January protests. So Timur, if the organization really serves as more of a mechanism to keep Russia-friendly leaders in place, why wouldn't Uzbekistan look to rejoin the organization? Surely Mirziyoyev, the president of Uzbekistan, has some worries about similar protests occurring inside Uzbekistan.
1: When it comes to Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan is different in its way of providing its security and just running its politics and economics. And if we take any sphere of Uzbekistan, we will see that if there can be one word with which we can characterize Uzbekistan's foreign policy, it would be protectionism. Uzbekistan from the very beginning was paying a lot of attention on being a self-sufficient country in terms of economy, in terms of uh, security. And right now, if we just take a look at different numbers, we will see that Uzbekistan in the last three decades has managed to create its own self-sufficiency in economic sphere. Uzbekistan produces its own products that is needed for the population. It covers the demand in the basic necessities of the people. Uzbekistan's army is one of the strongest in the region, of course, um, it did It didn't just happen because Islam Karimov, the first president was really strategically thinking about Uzbekistan being really independent. It also happened because it was very, very needed for the political elites, because at the end of the day, it is political elites who are privileged to be in the best place in Uzbekistan and have a lot of income from the closed system of Uzbekistan in economy, for example. It created this idea that Uzbekistan depends on its own and it was privileged to geographically be located in the center of Central Asia and have buffer zones between its territory and Russia and China, so the pressure from Moscow uh, on Kazakhstan isn't compared to the level of pressure that Moscow has put on Uzbekistan. That's why Uzbekistan has much more freedom in its foreign policy.
0: So there have been a lot of people touting Kazakhstan's divorcing from Russia. And yes, the rhetoric coming out from Tokayev at the moment would be unthinkable just a few years ago, but are things also changing at a policy level? As an example, I know people keep pointing to Kazakhstan refusing to recognise the annexations in Ukraine, but Kazakhstan also doesn't recognise Transnistria, or the Georgian breakaways, or Karabakh, or even Taiwan, events that happened years or even decades ago. So how much is actually changing when it comes to Kazakh foreign policy?
1: Yes, I understand why there is so much excitement about Takayev's announcements about the way Kazakhstan's rhetoric has changed since the war in Ukraine. But I wouldn't jump into conclusion that it is the end of Russia's Kazakhstan, a strong relationship. Kazakhstan Steel continues to be one of the main supporters of Russia's integrational projects in Eurasia. If you just take any single entity, any sh- single project idea of Russia, of you know integration in this big region, you would see that Kazakhstan is mostly present in all of these projects. Apart from that, there are still existing ties between the political elites of two countries that understand each other, that have informal ties with each other. And these ties were created not today, not yesterday, and not a year ago, but exist for decades. In my view, that was the reason behind Kazakhstan's really multivectoral foreign policy that exists in Kazakhstan for already decades. And if we just take a look at Kazakhstan's economy, of course, it depends a lot on Russia, But at the same time, the presence of European countries, the presence of the US in Kazakhstan's economy is much bigger than in any other Central Asian country. And that is why right now Kazakhstan really wants the world to believe that Kazakhstan is not Russia, that Kazakhstan is not supporting Russia, and that Kazakhstan is not supporting Putin's decision to start a war against Ukraine. Kazakhstan doesn't want to be put into one basket together with uh, Putin's regime and makes everything to have this image of, of a country that is victim of circumstances. But whether or not it says anything about the future in which Kazakhstan would completely cut off its ties with Russia, I doubt it. That amount of ties that exist there, the amount of dependencies in almost all spheres from economy to security that exist there between Kazakhstan and Russia are, in many ways, our backbone of Kazakhstan's foreign policy. And to change all that, we will have to wait for not years, but decades.
0: The relationship between Kazakhstan and Russia is a very complicated one, with one of those major complications being the fact some of the cities along the north of the country, like Semoy or Petropavel, are majority ethnically Russian, the same justification the Russians used to enter the Donbass and Crimea. And on top of that, the majority of the military equipment, pipelines, resources, consumer goods will all come from Russia as well. So how hard would it be for Kazakhstan to fully divulge itself away from Russian dependence?
1: I would say for now it's not possible, I wouldn't be surprised if more than 70-75% of the military equipment that Kazakhstan possesses is Soviet or modernized Soviet-Russian equipment. And this is something that not only tells about the dependency of Kazakhstan, but also creates further ties with Russia because all of this equipment needs to be taken care of. All of this equipment needs to have engineers that understand how it works and military personnel that understands how to use it. And this creates much more ties with uh, Russian government and the need to have specific professionals who would be basically consulting about the way this equipment should be taken care of. So it's very difficult to change. And especially right now when Kazakhstan finds itself um, in a situation when two of its main partners, Russia and China, are in a very bad state of relationship with the West, it's becoming more and more difficult for Kazakhstan to let Western countries into this very sensitive sphere of security. So Kazakhstan has little alternatives. So I think it would be very difficult for Kazakhstan to place Russia in its security. And if it wants to go there, it doesn't have many alternatives in this world.
0: When it comes to the economies of Kazakhstan or any of the other Central Asian states, most of their economies are built around extracting goods, transporting them into Russia to travel onto the European markets. But now with Europe closing its doors to Russia, the Central Asians no longer have this option open to them. So how much are these sanctions impacting the original economies?
1: Yes, that's another problem that uh, Central Asian countries have faced with. Mainly, I think here we should talk about Kazakhstan and Kazakhstan's oil exports to European markets, which is more than a million barrels a day. And of course, since the European markets started to close themselves from Russia, it's becoming more and more difficult to differentiate other countries from Russia because most of the energy resources from Central Asian countries come to European market through the territory of Russia. But at the same time, European countries want to make sure that Central Asian countries, their economies are not damaged by all of these sanctions. You know, Most of the Central Asian countries stated that they're not supporting Russia's aggression against Ukraine, but it's not in the hands of European Union to control this because the main control here in Moscow's hands and Moscow has already shown how it can stop experts of um, energy resources from Central Asian countries to Europe by just creating problems on pipelines and creating problems with the courts, blaming uh, basically Central Asian logistic companies in different Things like not working in accordance with the ecology laws of Russia. So at the end of the day, it would be Russia who would be deciding whose gas and oil is going through its territory to Europe. And for example, if Europe wants to stop any import from Russia in the nearest future, which is not very possible, but uh, still Russia's revenge to that might be blocking export of energy resources from Central Asia as well, which would be kind of a message to both parties, to European countries. It would be a message that if you want to get rid of our energy imports, you should also get rid of Central Asia and to Central Asia it would be a message that if you want to be neutral and don't want to support us, uh, we have the additional pressure to put on you so that you would change your mind.
0: So Russia has baked its dominance right into the region and Moscow is more than aware that almost all roads lead to Moscow that even if the Central Asian states really wanted to bypass Russia across the Caspian and get straight into the Middle East and European markets, it would require huge investments from Western companies, many of which are hesitant to work within the region. But this situation isn't advantageous, and these Central Asian states may be worried about tying themselves to an ever-diminishing Russia. But if Russia is economically exasperated, who else is there to turn to? Well, the answer would be China. So with Beijing now paying a lot of the bills for these countries and confidence in the Russian military shattered, will these Central Asian states look to abandon the now proven toothless CSTO and turn toward China for military and economic direction? Well, to answer that, we turn to our final guest.
2: Part
1: 3. Debt Traps and Cold Snaps
3: So since the invasion of Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, the China-Russia relationship has shifted a bit, but I think it's shifted under the surface more than above it. Above the surface, the fundamental logic which ties the two together, which is that they both see themselves as locked in a struggle against the West and see each other as critical allies in that struggle, remains the kind of driving logic which continues to tie them together. However, beneath the surface, there is a clear shift of balance and power, uh, which was already happening before, but has been slightly accelerated. And that is that where it used to be maybe a more balanced relationship, it's very clear that China holds an awful lot of cards now. And the final point is that there has been a noticeable increase in frustration from Beijing about the destabilizing effect that Russia is having on lots of sort of global trends and patterns. But the key thing to remember is the first point, which is that ultimately the geostrategic relationship that they hold together, that Moscow and Beijing really see as critical, I think, to their kind of global postures, remains, I would argue, as solid as it was before the invasion.
0: Raffaello Pantucci is a senior fellow specializing in political violence and terrorism research at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies. He's also a senior research fellow with the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, with his research and writing focusing on terrorism and counter-terrorism, as well as China's relations with his Western neighbors in Central Asia. In addition to this, he's also the editor of China and Central Asia, and the co-founder of the Young China Watchers. But most importantly to this conversation, he's also the author of the amazing book, Sinustan, China's Inadvertent Empire, and we're thrilled to have him on the program today.
3: I've been fortunate in getting to travel to China and around Central Asia and, you know, over the years and in China in particular, I would always find that, you know, Chinese experts or Chinese officials I talk to would always say that, well, clearly this is Russia's backyard. At the same time, they recognize and their companies recognize that there's a rich wealth of natural resources there that they want to tap. And at the same time, there is a crucial domestic logic which drives Chinese engagement with the region, which is this idea of trying to develop ultimately to ensure stability in Xinjiang, uh, its westernmost province that shares, you know, a border with the region. And in many ways, I would argue is kind of like a sixth or seventh Central Asian country in the sense that it's got an indigenous Turkic population. It's part of China. I'm not denying that it's part of China, but, you know, it's kind of got all the attributes in some ways of a Central Asian country. It's landlocked, It's remote, it's underdeveloped in some ways, it's got lots of natural resources. It's really far from the waterways that dominate sort of global trade. And this is critical to think about because then from a Chinese perspective, to develop and stabilize Xinjiang, you really need to try to open it up to the region next to it. And this is where the logic of the Belt and Road comes from. This idea of creating connectivity to ultimately improve prosperity back at home, ultimately to deliver stability, is kind of driving driving thrust and driving interest that China has in terms of its direct relationships with um, Xinjiang and at the end of the day that relationship is about stabilizing Xinjiang both in direct terms of you know the potential for dissidents to gather in Central Asia to cause trouble in China but also in the kind of bigger longer term of you know trying to make Xinjiang economically prosperous and stable uh, requires it to be well connected and be in a prosperous and stable region
0: it's something we've covered a few times in this program before but China is becoming the big regional counterweight in Central Asia to Russia with Beijing getting very involved in many of these countries' domestic security services, and the case of Tajikistan even housing Chinese soldiers on Tajik territory, something that adds even more confusion to the CSTO question. China's justification for these moves is that if China were to leave the region to itself, that chaos and terrorism would drift out from Afghanistan into the region and then into China's sensitive Xinjiang region. But how realistic a threat do you think that is for Beijing?
3: It feels like quite a distant issue uh, or problem at this point, to be honest with you. But I think the point to remember is that has been a constant concern from a Chinese perspective, really, since the beginning. So if you go back to the end of the uh, Soviet Union, uh, when the five countries of Central Asia were created, when Russia was created as well. So suddenly, China found itself sharing a border with this region, and then you look at the kind of 1990s, the 1990s were quite an unstable time for Central Asia. Uh, You had a civil war in Tajikistan, you had instability in all the others to varying degrees, and you had pretty large scale militant incursions in Southern uh, Kyrgyzstan, led mostly by a group called the Islamic Movement of Uzbekistan, but also led by fractions that came off from the Tajik civil war. And then of course in Afghanistan, you had long standing conflict that raged on there after the Soviets withdrew in 89, uh, but sort of stretched out the 90s and the Taliban takeover, which brought some sort of modicum of control to the country to one group, but didn't really bring stability. And in fact, brought to power an organization that seemed quite happy to host an awful lot of militant groups, militant groups that threatened a lot of the Central Asian countries. In 1999, there was a series of large bombings that took place in downtown Tashkent. Um, And also in the late 1990s, there was a number of incidents in Xinjiang, a pretty large-scale violence in Kashgar, up in Ili, in cities where Uyghur groups sort of tried to take over parts of the city or their large sales conflicts. We don't know exactly how many people died, but it was certainly sort of instability. So there is a history of violence in the region that's linked to some of these separatist movements. And so that sort of sets the scene and the shape of China's thinking and relations and the region's relations with China in a way. And it remains a sort of constant issue. And this is why I think if you look at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, which was you know initially born out of a grouping called the Shanghai Five, which basically was to help China establish and define its borders and establish relationships with the new countries it now shared a border with after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when in 2000, when it transformed into the SCO, the kind of key issue they were locked around was counterterrorism cooperation. From what I think you've seen as you've gotten up to today is that where that threat may come from has shifted. And while China still worries about Uyghur groups grab- gathering in the region, to be honest with you, the region's pretty happy to work with China on dealing with those problems if they should come across them. I've been around the region and talked to security officials in almost every single capital. And they've told me, you know, instances of when they did something with the Chinese in specifically response to that. So there's a kind of, there's there's quite a strong security barrier. Now, the element that I think has changed now, which worries the Chinese in particular, is there's always concern that violence in the region will overspill into Xinjiang. But now increasingly the narrative is turning in a way in that you can see that a growing number of militant groups in the region are seeing China as kind of the boogeyman. You know, as the big adversary, you look at the group, there's a number of groups in uh, in Afghanistan, you know, there's Islamic State of Khorasan province, ISKP, which has been talking a lot about a threat from China. There are some weaker groups in Afghanistan as well. The leader of the Turkestan Islamic Party, Abdul Haq, has last released a video in Eid of this year showing off that he was in Afghanistan. In Pakistan, you've got a wide range of groups, you know, not only separatists, but now Islamists are also talking about targeting Chinese, and working together to that end. And in Central Asia, you've got a growing kind of sense of nationalism on the ground, some of it quite angry, violent nationalism, that is increasingly targeting China. So there is a sense of China's becoming kind of the big adversary in the region to an awful lot of people because it's becoming the big power in the region in many ways. And that's a circle which I think China struggling to square at the moment. But will all of this blow back into China? That's very difficult to know because China's control of Xinjiang is pretty substantial and pretty tight. And I think that would be a difficult thing in some ways for a group to organize and breach.
0: Having traveled to this region of the world quite a number of times, one of the dichotomies you quickly notice is that whilst all the construction projects have Chinese signs, and that every new adventure in the country is a JV with a Chinese state company, culturally, there's very little Chinese influence on the ground. As an example, I can travel the entire region speaking Russian, and most people I meet will either speak Russian as a first or second language. But with Mandarin, it's pretty seldomly spoken anywhere west of Almaty or outside parts of Tajikistan. So how does China feel about spending so much money into the region, but seeing such a shallow cultural footprint.
3: Russian history hangs very heavy uh, throughout the region. You know, the sort of leftovers from the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire before that, you know, was very influential in the region. So you've got a long history of, you know, Moscow being the capital that everyone looked to to go to in the region rather than towards China and Urumqi. What's striking to me in a way is that, I think on the linguistic side at least, it struck me in visits over the years that there has been a bit of a shift. So. The most noticeable shift I noticed was in Tajikistan, where when I first went there, and I think it was 2010 or 2011, and I was going there to try to find out about China in the region, I struggled to find anybody. <laughs> you know, there was some Chinese businessmen I managed to bump into. Uh, there was a really nice Chinese guy who took he me under his wing. I met the local Confucius Institute director, who was a very friendly chap, and, you know, introduced me to some of his students. I got into the embassy, I took some people there. But I couldn't really find any Tajiks who spoke much Mandarin whatsoever. Now, if, you know, in between, I visited a number of times, but then most recently, I was there in late 2019 or early 2020, just before the pandemic, and I was struck by the volume of Tajiks I found who now learnt Mandarin because they saw it as a kind of potential business opportunity. And so, that linguistic element, I think, has changed. But beyond that, you know, the cultural side doesn't seem to have been absorbed in the same way. It was always striking visiting Confucius Institutes around the region where we'd ask. The students there, why are you learning Mandarin? I found very few who were learning it because of some sort of interest or, or adoration for, you know, reading Sun Tzu in, in in the original language or, you know, going to visit Kongzi Confucius's temple or something like that. It was, or even, you know, Chinese movies or something, you know, there was obviously very, very little interest or appetite in that. But there was a lot of, you know, appetite and interest in hearing about, you know, Western culture, American culture, and even Bollywood films, which are really quite prominent around the region. There was always kind of a hierarchy of how people saw each other within this and i think within those hierarchies the sort of chinese were always seen quite low as quite a sort of low status community and i think that continues to permeate today where narratives of kind of yellow peril or swamping invasion of all these millions of chinese are going to sweep me over the border is a is a nerve that you can touch quite quickly uh, when you're sort of getting into conversations with people about china and its influence in the region Um, and i think that touches on a kind of a deeper underlying cultural sense that does exist within them about you know china as this alien power over the border with all these people who are going to come sweeping in at some point and you know absorb everything
0: china is regularly starting to make moves militarily in this region running frequent military exercises and counter-terrorism drills with several of the central asian states and with russia running less and less of these drills due to being tied up in ukraine going forward do you see china playing a bigger role in the region militarily
3: one of the misnomers I always thought about analysis that people make of China, and Russia, in particular, in Central Asia, is that there's some sort of division, where you know the Russians do the security and the Chinese do the economics. Well, it bothered me for a number of reasons. The sort of most fundamental one was that security actually costs money, <laughs> you know, and so what the, this narrative seemed to paint that the Russians were willing to just give away something, an asset, um, you know, in exchange for what. And the Chinese will get all the economic benefits. Well, there's no logic to that in my mind. And then the other side to that is this assumes a level of trust between China and Russia that frankly I've never really found, which is, you know, this idea that from a Chinese perspective, the security interests and threats that they see emanating from the region, either in terms of, you know, the economic stability helping economic stability and security in Xinjiang or worrying about, you know, distant militants, Uyghurs who might gather in the region or trouble some groups from Afghanistan that might come to attack China. Why would they trust the Russians to deal with these problems for them? I think they'd want to have eyes and deal with it themselves. And I think the story of the past few years has really been a growing assertion of those Chinese eyes, if you will, in Central Asia. And Afghanistan is the sort of clearest example of that. I remember, since in fact visiting in 2011 and thinking again in 2012 when I was there, I remember hearing rumors about Chinese bases along the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan. As the years went on, sort of these rumors crystallized into reality, <laughs> um, into now what we know is a PAP base that's mm-hmm. along there. PAP being, you know, the People's Armed Police, which is important to note because the PAP, of course, is a domestic. Security force responsible for counterterrorism issues. And the PAP leads on a lot of engagements that China does in Central Asia because ultimately there's a counterterrorism concern that underpins a lot of what they're doing. So it makes sense for the domestic counterterrorism agency to be the one, or counterterrorism security force rather than agency, being the one who's kind of leading on these engagements. But it was interesting. So they built these bases along the border, which is basically giving China an ability to have eyes on the very sort of, you know, remote and difficult Wuhan corridor which connects China to Afghanistan directly. But then what you've also seen is, you know, the Chinese investing in helping to build Tajik bases along that border, and then on the other side of the Wahan corridor, uh, where you go to uh, Gilgit-Baltistan g- g- in Pakistan, they've done some work there with the local Pakistani security forces uh, to help them build up their capability. And so, in a way, what you can see is they built up a nice little buffer zone with their forces involved in helping, but also spending money on building up the barriers. They've also created sub-regional groups, and now in 2016, they founded a mechanism, if you will, called the QCCM, the Quadrilateral Coordination Cooperation Mechanism, which brought together the chiefs of army staff of Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and China to meet on a regular basis and essentially help with military coordination and security questions in that specific corridor area. Now, all of this, you know, is not about stabilizing the region. It's about stabilizing China's border. (laughs) You know, and it's really focused on Chinese security concerns. And if you then look at sort of Chinese security engagement around the region more widely, that's what it's really focused on. It's always worrying about Chinese issues and Chinese concerns. It's not in some ways the more paternalistic view you see from Moscow, which it says, you know, this region's our soft underbelly, so we're gonna have to defend the whole thing. We're gonna have to throw our weight behind it, support them, because that's the way that we ultimately will guarantee our security. The Chinese say, no, no, we see where our threats come from. We're going to focus on those. And so that, I think, will continue and strengthen as the years go forward. The other thing which I think is interesting to observe, and this is a more direct maybe competition with Russia, is military sales, where you can see that, you know, the Chinese have won over the past few years a number of big military contracts that traditionally you would have expected to go to the Russians. And they've tended to be on the more high-end scale of things there was one particular there was one particular cell that i think was really gold the russians was when the uh, kazakhs did bought some heavy lift Ya aircraft they bought these heavy lift aircraft and essentially the heavy lift aircraft they bought from the chinese was a direct knockoff of something that the chinese had bought from the russians years and years before basically retro-engineered and then were sort of selling again in the open market so i think going forward you might see a few more of those sales going but Having said that, there's been some other interesting developments on the arms sales side. If you look at what the Turks are actually doing and the capability that they're offering to the region. And, you know, the region does have an interesting connection with Turkey. And on the arms sales in particular, there have been some interesting inroads, I think, made by the Turks who are offering some pretty interesting competitive hardware to the Chinese. But I think what you'll see going forward is essentially the Chinese increasingly moving into that sort of high-end tech and military tech space and tech in other ways space as well, and dominating it and becoming kind of the main provider there and all the security consequences that flow from that in terms of China having a lever into security and also continued tightening of China's focus on security threats that it sees that might come back at it. And what I think you might start to see is a greater assertion over time. Well, you know, maybe going forwards, you'll see the Chinese asserting themselves a little bit more in terms of trying to crack down on some of those. Or in Kyrgyzstan or in Tajikistan, where you have seen large-scale public protests, you know, disrupting projects, you might start to see the Chinese being a bit more kind of pointed in trying to resolve some of these issues and not maybe always relying on locals, but maybe actually forcing the countries to let them bring in their own security people. And by security people, I think it'd be private security companies, private military companies, and those ones being kind of a bit more forward about trying to you know ensure security for their people so i think the footprint will continue in that direction but i don't think it'll ever kind of bother to try to surpass the russian one because of the underlying Sinophobia that we kind of touched on a little bit earlier which would mean that were the Chinese to sharpen in a big presence that would cause a problem but on the other hand because i don't think the chinese want to own that problem they would rather just fix specific problems that are going to impact them rather than transform the region
0: now i'm not suggesting the csto is near collapse anytime soon but if it did, could you see China looking to fill that vacuum with some sort of Chinese-led replacement involving some of the Central Asian states, Pakistan, Cambodia, Laos, maybe North Korea? Would China be at the helm of whatever comes after the CSTO?
3: I think the Chinese view would be we already have something which could do that if we wanted it to, and if the region wanted it to, and that's the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization has already expanded uh, beyond the kind of initial Central Asian base that it had, you know, with India and Pakistan joining and now Iran being on its way for membership. You've got the Belarusians knocking at the door, you've got the Turks knocking on the door. It wouldn't surprise me if that organization continues to expand and were the CSTO to collapse, there, I think, would be, you know, I don't think China would see, oh, well, maybe we need to create an alternative in the region. They would say, well, you know, if you guys want, we can do some stuff through the SCO that you used to do through the CSTO. And in a way, they already do. They do big joint exercises through the, the SCO. The Chinese do bilateral stuff through the SEO as well. So in a way, you could kind of transplant any of the elements that the region wanted, you know, if we look at the, the CSTO as an organization, it hasn't really actually done much, you know, I mean, everyone says the SEO hasn't done much. It hasn't. But, you know, it's had a lot of meetings. <laughs> it's had a lot of, you know, gatherings of people in all sorts of places and all sorts of training exercises. But, you know, it hasn't actually done anything. And the CSTO was very similar until earlier this year when we saw the CSTU being asked and accepting to go help the Kazakhs out when they had their chaos at the beginning of the year. But that was the first kind of deployment for the CSTO in its lifespan. And we haven't seen a similar deployment from the SCO. But again, I wouldn't discount it as something that could potentially happen. Whereas if you did get to a similar situation, and if the host country asked it, um, the organization, could you help us deploy? Could you help rally some people to support us. I could see the SCO maybe trying to do that, but I think the conditions would have to be very particular in the same way that the situation in Kazakhstan was very particular, which was essentially that the government essentially lost faith in its own security forces because of internal political squabbles and had to sort of call on somebody to help basically fill some gaps temporarily while they stabilized the situation and then the CSTO or the Russian force left. So, but the CSTO hasn't stepped into any difficult problems. And that's what I don't envision the SEO doing either. But if we think about the kind of the softer stuff that the CSTO does, in a way, it's already happening through the SEO. So, I would imagine the vision from China would be well, okay, the CSTO is gone, no great loss to anybody. If the need is for something like that, the CSTO can attempt to have a go. And if the SEO agrees, we'll do it. If they don't, we won't. And that'll be the end of that
0: if they were to expand the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to take on many of the roles that the CSTO does at the moment, do you think they'd also include the key Article 4 measure, the mutual defense part, so that an attack on one nation would be regarded as an attack on all nations? Or frankly, that's a poison pill when you have India and Pakistan and Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and all these nations in the one organization.
3: I do not see them putting in a mutual defense clause uh, within the the fractures you already have within the SCO in terms of for example the clash between India and Pakistan I mean the Indians and the Pakistanis are very good about actually keeping their bilateral disputes out of SCO formats they do slip in sometimes but most of the time they don't and they seem happy both to engage on counterterrorism exercises together through the CST through the SCO notwithstanding the fact that as we know they have a very tense bilateral security relationship I think describing it as a poison pill is very Apt thing to say. If they were to insert that, it would be really risky for the organization. I think they could all probably see that coming from a mile off and wouldn't want to insert it.
0: And my last question for you here as a hypothetical, let's say over the next few months, Russia and Ukraine find some sort of solution to the war, whether it's a Transnistria style frozen front line or something else. With Russia then being able to pull the majority of its forces out of Ukraine and redeploy those extra troops back into Armenia, Belarus, South Ossetia, Abkhazia, Kyrgyzstan, and Tajikistan. When they retake up those posts, do you think we'll snap back to the dynamics we had in January? Or, frankly, has this war in Ukraine permanently shifted the math in this region of the world?
3: I think the power dynamics between Central Asia and Russia have been pretty substantially damaged, frankly i think the central asians you know if they're honest with themselves they would say well when was russia really a true security provider of the region russia hasn't really done much about an awful lot of the trouble that happens in the region but you know they do do some stuff it was always sort of half and half in a way and it tended to serve more russian interests than local interests but i think that has really had a cold light shone on it and that and the fact that you know the sort of clear uh, loss of russian power and influence and the clear assertion by the region increasing of its sort of independence and autonomy from russia while at the same time recognizing that russia is a really important relationship for them i think that dynamic has sort of fundamentally changed the question which i'm thinking a lot about at the moment and trying to work out is then the knock on the second half of your question is what the impact is then for the Central Asian relationship with china and i'm frankly still working on that one because on the one hand, I think there is evidence, and I think Xi Jinping's visit to Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan in September for the SEO summit, but also for bilateral engagements was an indicator of how much the region wanted China to come back. And some of the narratives you saw coming out of Kazakhstan in particular, where they interpreted some of Xi Jinping's comments as evidence that he would step in and protect them should the Russians come and do something, even though I think they were slightly over-interpreting what he said. That says to me that there is a desire from the Central Asians to get more from the Chinese, engage more with them, but I'm not sure that's reciprocated, to be honest, because the Chinese wouldn't want to kind of own problems because if they own problems, then they have to try to fix them and fixing problems is really difficult. They just can't do it. I mean, they struggle at home. Why would you want to try to do these things abroad where you've got so little experience? especially in a region which unfortunately has a history of instability, something that's been brought into really sharp relief over this past year with, you know, large-scale violence in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and a shooting war between the Kyrgyz and the Tajiks, and instability up in Gabao in Tajikistan. So, you know, why would the Chinese want to own these problems that are going to be very difficult to fix, and they probably wouldn't know how to fix anyway? So my sense would be that actually the interesting dynamic is going to be, I think you're clearly going to see a rupture a, strong, a changing dynamic between the region and Russia, um, and I think you're also going to see a continued desire by the region to want China to play more, but find a very reticent partner in exchange. And so the Central Asians continue in their endless quest of trying to find someone else to help them and work with them. And this, I think, helps explain an awful lot of why you can see the Uzbek's in particular really focusing on this idea of you know connectivity and links to South Asia, which is in part a sort of way of you know expanding their region and getting into the seas, but also an attempt to show, okay, we can project out in this direction, and this will give us a kind of a way out from our landlocked uh, position in between these two powers that we have these complicated relationships with.
0: So what are these six nations to do? Well, Russia likes the CSTO, and that's because at one point they could wield it countries like Azerbaijan or Turkey to deter them from ever considering any invasion of Armenia or any other CSTO state. But once again, that bluff has been called, and this is no longer the threat it once was. In fact, these days, Russia can barely even get NATO to sit down with the CSTO, because frankly, NATO doesn't take it seriously. And even if we dig in further, and we look at five of the six individual nations by themselves, the situation doesn't get much better. Belarus has now chained itself to Moscow, knowing that there really is no going back after the 2020 election. If Lukashenko loses now, it won't be just a normal election loss, it won't mean a concession speech and a wave to the crowd, it will likely mean exile to Russia or a Belarusian prison. So Lukashenko feels he has no other choice. And the entire Belarusian strategy of trying to defend both the EU and Russia and be able to play one off against the other to seek concessions, well that has completely evaporated as the EU has slammed the door shut on any future agreements with Belarus. No matter what, whilst Lukashenko's is at the helm in Belarus, they will remain tied to Russia and the CSTO. Moving south, Armenia feels absolutely betrayed by the actions of a few months ago. And we've even seen the Armenian Prime Minister, Pashinyan, reach out to the Americans to ripstart some sort of relationship. But sadly, even they know deep down that any conflict between Turkey and Armenia, Washington will 100% pick Turkey in that fight. There's no way Turkey saves them from the Azeris, there's no way Washington gets involved, and frankly, they don't have enough resources to gain favour with China either, so the only bus on this route is the one to Moscow, and that's proving to be a pretty unreliable bus. Then we move to the east, with Kazakhstan, with a leader whose position I really don't envy. The Kazakh president, President Tokayev, is stuck in the very definition of a rock and a hard place, if people feel like Kyiv isn't actually the reformer he promised to be, will they form another protest movement to topple him? And if they do, will the CSTO have enough manpower to save him like they did in January? Maybe not. But Dukhaev will want to know that safety net's there, so they have to keep good relations with the CSTO, whilst at the same time knowing that relying on Russia is economically tumultuous, particularly as all the roads westward that the Kazakhs once used are now closed. Even if they were to look to the other security guarantor of the region, China, Walter Kaev would be aware that the Kazakh people are somewhat wary of China, and it would be very politically unpopular to cozy up to them too closely, seemingly inviting more protests, something you really don't want when you've just left the CSTO. Even if they were to approach the Americans and dive headfirst into a program of westernization, watching the Kazakhs ramp up their anti-Russia rhetoric, chasing those American dollars and trying to keep the reformers happy, well... You're just boosting the chances of Russia starting trouble in your ethnic enclaves in the north, or Russia simply sabotaging the Kazakh pipes that would supply the Americans. Then the American investors leave, and you're back where you started. Except this time with Russia looking to settle a score. For the Kyiv, committing in any direction is going to bring problems for Kazakhstan. So what about the other two? Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Sizable parts of both the Kyrgyz and Tajik economies are made up of remittances. They're in a position where nearly 30% of their economy comes from Karigis and Tajik workers travelling to Russia to work as cabbies or labourers or street sweepers and then sending some of that money home. Just those remittances make up at least 30% of the Tajik GDP. And if they were to go against Russia, well, then Russia could respond by simply amending the visa laws and preventing Tajik workers from travelling to Russia and sending money home vaporizing 30-40% to 40% of the Tajik GDP overnight. And this is a fairly similar story for the Kyrgyz economy as well. So for the both of them, keeping Moscow happy is really the only option. Belarus under Lukashenko has no other choice. Armenia has no other friends in the region. Kazakhstan relies on the CSTO for their safety net. And Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan simply can't afford to go against Russia. And what this means is that the CSTO will be more than likely to continue... Because even though it doesn't really help anyone, at this point in time, these members don't really have anywhere else to go. So they continue their membership, knowing that if a real crisis were to hit the region in the future, an Uzbek invasion of Kyrgyzstan, an Azeri takeover of Armenia, or even a Chinese invasion of Kazakhstan, these nations might light the beacons, but the riders of Rohan aren't riding in to save the day here. thank you so much for tuning into this episode. As you can probably tell by now, I love talking about the dynamics of the former Soviet states, with Central Asia in particular being a primary focus for me. For the people who are listening who aren't watching the census numbers in Turkmenistan or tank redeployments in Kazakhstan, I'm sure you may have follow-up questions about today's episode, and I'm more than happy to take the time and answer those questions. So if you have any follow-up questions from this episode, the best way to send them to us and get in contact with us is via our various social medias. So, if you want to keep up to date with everything else we have going on and get in direct contact with us, you can find all of our links and info on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, and TikTok on the handle at The Redline Pod. Or if you're keen to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at Mike Hillied Oz, Oz is in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons, who donate a small amount of money to help myself and the team keep this going. And speaking of our Patreons, this episode is dedicated to friend of the show, Hal Williams who is the latest Patreon to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of listeners like Hal, so if you feel you could spare a couple of dollars, we would absolutely appreciate it. But for now, this episode on the collapse of the CSTO is all thanks to you, Hal. Cheers, mate. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first, and the one our Patreons are likely to hear a lot more about in our upcoming Best Books of 2022, is Sinustam, China's Hidden Empire, by this week's guest, Raffaello Bentucci. For an amazing analysis on China's growing influence throughout the region. The second is Dictators Without Borders by a friend of the show, Alexander Cooley, for a great unfolding of how dark money and authoritarianism is pulsating throughout the region. And the third is The Eagle and the Trident by this week's guest, Stephen Pfeiffer, for a full rundown on the dynamics between Russia, Ukraine, and the intertwining of their former Soviet economies. I want to say thanks to this week's guests, Stephen Pfeiffer, Timur Omarov, and Raffaele Bantucci. These three guests are some of the most charming and lovely people you will ever meet. So this week's episode to me felt more like a catch-up and a wag, and I absolutely loved putting it together. So looking forward to having you all back on the program sometime soon. On top of them, I also want to thank my staff. Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Danielle Isabella, Isaac Gibbs, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Jamie Tanu, our media director, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Troy Hawthorne our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. It's an absolutely fantastic team, and I'm very excited to be expanding it over this week. After nearly three months of weekly episodes, thanks to the red line and the green line. It feels somewhat cathartic to say it again, but the red line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening and good night.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Redline Podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.